Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, where we talk about the policy, business, and technology behind space exploration and commercialization. We're on the web at spacewalksmoneytalks.com and on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Gurbir Singh, author of The Indian Space Program, India's Incredible Journey from the Third World Towards the First. Uh, that was published in 2017. And uh, today, we're not going to be talking about the book so much as um, sort of the present state of the Indian Space Program and and any um, anything new that's come up since you published the book. Uh, but thank you for speaking with me. It's great to be here, Chris. So first, um, tell me... Tell me about the Indian Space Program. What would you like to mention as far as what's currently going on? Well, it's got very unusual and interesting roots. And because I was born in India, it's one space program that uh, I wasn't aware of in terms of detail. I grew up in the time of uh, Apollo and Yuri Gagarin. So um, I started to investigate and learn about the Indian Space Program, and it took me about six years with, with three research trips all over India, visiting some of the several key sites of the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, mm -hmm. and um, it was a fascinating journey. So the Indian Space Program actually started on the 21st of November, 1963, and that was the day that a particular event took place and uh, that event was the launch of a sounding rocket from the southern tip of India, the state of Kerala. Mm -hmm. It was a sounding rocket, so suborbital, um, and it was the very first time that something launched from Indian soil went into space and that is highly regarded as the start of the Indian space program and it came about because the Indian government in the previous year had put together something that they called the Indian National Committee for Space Research or INCOSPAR and it was part of the COSPAR movement that was established here in Europe and right around the world as well. And uh, from that date onwards India has developed into something of a, a major space power really. It has now um, about 50 operational satellites in space right now. Mm -hmm. Navigation, communication, meteorology, and Earth observation. It's also got uh, a spacecraft in orbit around the Moon and an operational spacecraft in the orbit of Mars as well. And later, um, probably late next year, it's hoping to launch its very first human into space with its own human space program which was initiated by the Prime Minister last year. There's a whole heap of other um, science missions. India has uh, a space telescope in Earth orbit which the Indian press tend to call Hubble, India's equivalent to Hubble Space Telescope. It's quite an impressive instrument, not quite like Hubble fascinating and technically a uh, huge achievement nevertheless and by uh, about next year or the year after more likely India hopes to launch a spacecraft to uh, to observe the sun its first solar mission called Aditya 1 mm -hmm. and also it has plans to go to the 
to Mars with the second Martian mission and the first mission to the planet Venus as well. Mm. But in the near term, by the end of this year, although it looks like it's going to slip to early next year, it hopes to go back to the moon with uh, its um, second attempt at landing. And if you like, we can talk about the lunar mission that India launched in July last year. Mm. The orbiter was successful, but the lunar lander and rover, not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question I have is, um, where are the major, are, are there major companies within India that um, that build uh, launch vehicles or the satellites, or is it um, mostly working alongside other um, non-Indian businesses or governments? Well, this is, in this way, India is really peculiar. Uh, and it's unfortunate because it's this area that India hasn't really resolved very well that uh, is the main reason why its launch frequency is so low and its capacity of spacecraft that it needs to have in, in orbit is not meeting its own needs. And the frequency of launches, for example, um, it's never reached double figures, the number of launches in one year in throughout its history for fi- over 50 years. So the pro- main problem is that currently all of the launches um, and launches take place are under the auspices of the Indian Space Research Organization, which is a, a government body. The uh, Israel has been trying to engage and claiming that it's engaging larger proportion of the private industry, but that engagement has been very slow and remains slow. And usually, the private sector of Indian companies tends to be um, companies which are small and do work for Israel under license, developing and implementing the technology that Israel has developed. Mm. In two respects, um, I suppose two main developments recently is that India has now got companies which will build the satellites for them. The last um, navigation satellite that was launched by Israel was built entirely under uh, the auspices of a private sector company, although the relationship there, I suspect, wasn't as independent as Israel would like to see it, and hopefully it won't be so in the future. And in addition to that, the key launch vehicle that Israel uses is the SL, uh, the PSLV, and that launch vehicle, again, um, the frequency rate of launches is so low, mainly because Israel doesn't have the capacity to build so many of them and engaging uh, independent private sector companies to do that is one of the things that Israel's target is for this year. Mm -hmm. So in both satellite or spacecraft manufacture and launch vehicle manufacture, uh, they're hoping to get uh, push that out entirely to the private sector as well as I'll just mention one other. In, as you may have noticed, there's a great um, move towards small satellites and small satellite launch vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Electron, for example, has been doing some terrific stuff in, in New Zealand and the US. And I suppose in part to target that market of small satellites, Israel has developed something that they call the Small Satellite Launch Vehicle, or SSLV. That is something that, from the outset, 
Israel wants the private sector to build and have a much more frequent launch uh, frequency than anything they have at the moment. I get the impression. So I feel like India has a huge amount of intellectual power, you know, a lot of scientists and engineers. Um, and yet the physical capacity, um, to use their, their, um, their capabilities doesn't seem to be there. Does that, is there a frustration among maybe Indian engineers, uh, who may go to other countries to use their skills or, or how does that dynamic work? You, you pointed to something quite important there, actually. The India has, uh, whenever you read any papers or presentations to do with uh, India and space, there's this word that keeps popping up, indigenous. India has always been uh, very keen to have this independent space program. And to that effect, uh, what's happened is that over the years, Israel has become essentially the, the master of everything with, to do with space in India. It tends to be the um, company, the organization that licenses uh, any uh, private sector companies that may want to um, develop or work in the space sector. And that has held it back because unlike in the US and, and other countries, the way that the space sector, private space sector in India works is that private space companies will only build for Israel what Israel is requested using Israel's um, intellectual property and the license. And that really frustrates a lot of the private sector companies which are prevented from, A, innovating and developing their own material and interacting with the larger global space market than just India. So India has been held back because of the lack of ab the absence of um, the space policy, for example, which a lot of countries are uh, developing right now, and something that's required for private companies in, in India to develop their own launches, their own satellites and spacecraft, um, they have to get permission or a license from Israel at the moment. In the absence of a, a national space policy, that will continue to hold back. And that's the consequences of all that is that a lot of the Indian scientists and engineers, as you said, very talented, end up working for the European Space Agency or indeed NASA or elsewhere um, because it's so frustrating to work in that field in India. Hmm. Why does ISRO keep such uh, control over, over the space industry there? Uh, I'm, I'm speculating, um, but I would guess it's um, just like anybody else who has power and control. Once they have it, very reluctant to let it go. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think the um, the pressure, not only the uh, commercial pressure within the country, but also from within the government departments and the people of India. Um, Israel is a terrific organization, very talented, hardworking people there. But they do, they are set in their ways. And I think the way that uh, it's organized in terms of um, um, inhibiting the development of the private sector will, in a year or two to come, will have to change significantly for that uh, step change that's required because Israel is going to be left um, way behind. If you've seen 
this year, like last year, China had the most launches in the world, 35 this year, compared to um, India, uh, compared to certainly India, India, India had only six, and indeed um, Russia and America were behind China both this year and last year. So India sees China because it's geographical vicinity as something to keep up with. So we will have to make uh, make substantial ch changes to make sure that the cadence of launches, for example, increases. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Gurbir Singh about the Space Agency of India, past, present, and future. You can find him and his podcast at astrotalkuk.org and on Twitter at Gurbir Singh. If you like this podcast, please follow, like, and comment at spacewalksmoneytalks.com on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Now back to the podcast. Does the, is the Indian public uh, very much aware of their space program? Is it well publicized, or is it sort of a, a cool thing that just a, a few people kind of keep track of? It is. Um, India is a very large, uh, has a very large population and a very large young population. And of course, space excites young people in India as it does elsewhere in the world. So there's a great following, huge following. Unfortunately, this is another area that Israel does not serve well. It's um, um, publicity and marketing operations uh, are very poor and very weak. Um, not Nothing at all like NASA. You know, if you go to NASA websites, they have YouTube channels, they have, keep uh, Twitter feeds updated. India or Israel, um, it is making progress. Uh, it was late last year, in fact, that they opened a, a viewing gallery at the primary and indeed only launch port, uh, spaceport in India called Sriharikota, which is on the east coast. And uh, until then, people who wanted to view a launch from India had to just, you know, go around to the nearest public roads. But now there is actually a, a gallery where people can go and watch. And indeed, India has just announced only a few months ago that they will be um, building another spaceport mainly for the small satellite launch vehicles, certainly to start off with. But it's uh, these kinds of mechanisms for engaging the public are very far and few in between. And then one other thing that India announced recently, because they are recognizing these shortcomings, is that they will be opening space museums in cities around the country. Currently, it, India has just one space museum, and it's inside a Israel space center, so access to it is very, very limited and restricted. So it's making some headway, but uh, the, in fact, it was the launch of the 2008 first mission to the moon that India was really uh, doing uh, one of the most successful space exploration missions that would have interested and intrigued the, the larger population. Mm -hmm. Just like when my interest in space during the 70s and 80s, uh, I followed NASA and the Pioneer and the Voyager missions, really got me into in space, and of course the Apollo before that. That 
first mission to the moon had the certainly had the social media been available as it is now then would have ca captured a lot of the uh, attention of the people uh, of the young people in India then and indeed in 2013 when India launched its mission to Mars that's exactly what happened the number of people who were attracted to not only understanding what's going on and following it but also applying for jobs within Israel shot up and since then it has Israel has done a job in terms of uh, developing a Facebook presence Twitter and a YouTube channel it is still incredibly weak given the benefit that it could accrue if it put some more time and effort in there now this plan to uh, send a person into into space uh, Indians plan to do that uh, India's plan to do that um, I would imagine that should spark um, widespread interest as well you know I don't know how their their um, program is developed or, or how it uh, what what the state of it is right now well it's yes it, it it indeed did capture the headlines in August last year when it was announced by the Prime Minister it's called Gaganyan and it's designed to uh, launch the, the initial announcement was that it would be a three crew spacecraft in Earth orbit for a week launched by a rocket, Indian-built rocket, from Indian soil. The mission profile was that um, they would be doing some escape, crew escape launch tests, building the infrastructure, building the capsule, capsule itself, the environmental control systems and the navigation and guidance that goes with it, testing the splashdown. The they have tested uh, with a couple of suborbital flights, or rather one suborbital flight in um, 2015, when a mock-up crew vehicle was uh, shot up to about 100 miles and then returned back to a splashdown using parachutes. But prior to that, way back in 2007, India did conduct what they called a the spacecraft recovery experiment and in that experiment that was the first time that they put a spacecraft in orbit it stayed in orbit for about a week did some ex experiments in uh, in leo and at the end of that it was deorbited and it splashed down that was the first time that israel recovered something that had been in space so on the back of that the israel felt felt that they could get the human spaceflight program, um, the goal of getting people, Indians, into space by 2022. Um, and currently, the I spoke to some of the Israel representatives at the IAC in Washington, D.C. in October. They say they're on target, and indeed, with the a few more um, in-flight abort tests, already conducted pad abort tests, um, they should be on target for a possible. Uh, well, they want to do a few more abort tests, in-flight abort tests, and then uh, do some dummy runs without space, without human beings on board, with a view to the earliest by December 2021, maybe get the very first flight in. But the target would be July 2022. They're still on target, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do that. And then once that's accomplished, what's the next goal? What's what? That's a step towards what afterwards? Well, um, so as 
most countries India's space program is highly nationalistic in nature and they're strategically keeping up with uh, their neighbors in in particular in China but China's way ahead and the intention of um, uh, future human spaceflight missions within India I did ask if uh, uh, India had plans to join NASA on its Artemis project the return to to the moon with uh, the first woman by 2024. Mm-hmm. Israel has not made any decisions on uh, about that, but I would suspect that if they can, they would like to collaborate on this. Uh, I should also mention that uh, although India has developed quite a lot of the critical technology for human spaceflight already, the, they are still at the very early stages. All of the training human spaceflight training is being uh, conducted uh, with a program of collaboration with Russia and Star City in Moscow. Mm. Um, and there's some uh, spaceflight medical collaborative work that India is doing with uh, France. So as these develop and gradually grow, um, I suspect in about three or four years' time, India will have these kinds of facilities in within India and be more capable of supporting um, collaborative international space missions of human spaceflight. But apart from human spaceflight, there are a few other projects that India uh, has in the pipeline, which I can mention too, if you like. Sure. Um, But just as an aside, it's interesting that um, the landing on the moon in 69 was driven by competition between the Soviet Union and the U.S. And now it seems that we have a space race where it's almost... um, a three-way where you have China um, and the U.S. are in competition, Russia is in there, and now India is competing with China. So you have a number of players all trying to um, succeed in various ways in, in the space arena. So it's kind of fascinating. That's right. And in fact, this time around, um, again, your observation's spot on. It is very competitive, and that's what drives... Uh, that was what's what drove the Apollo program in the 1960s, and certainly is doing that uh, now between India and China. But I think in addition to the international competition, there's also now um, a very real and collaborative environment, which didn't exist then. And on top of that, there is this incredibly uh, sophisticated and well-developed private sector program, which you will see probably before the year is out. And this year, um, there are, uh, I think, the um, about three or four private sector companies aiming to go to the moon and land on its surface as part of the NASA's uh, commercial lunar exploration program. They are um, driving um, towards an environment where you will not only have commercial partners uh, providing some aspects of the uh, lunar mission um, solution, not only to do with the NASA's gateway, but also collaboration between various countries. And indeed, on the NASA's gateway, this is the, if you like, the next step after the International Space Station, a space station around lunar orbit. Mm-hmm. And both Italy and Japan have already committed to collaborating with the U.S. in the gateway. And I should imagine that uh, within the next few years, India and 
I, if, I, I really hope China too will uh, come on board and uh, join US. You know, I remember the days when, of the days of Apollo, when the competition was between the USSR and USA. And then by middle of 1970s, 1975, there was the Apollo-Soyuz test project where the famous handshake between Soviet and American uh, astronauts took place in Earth orbit. So previously, they had been competitors. But by 1975, they were working together in space. And I see no reason why China will not also come and join um, once the Congress changes its uh, laws about China joining NASA and working in space collaboratively. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the um, the lunar missions that you, you've mentioned. Yeah, so just let's go back to uh, India's um, second lunar mission, Chandrayaan-2, was launched in July last year, and um, it was, there was two parts to it. One was a lander and the other an orbiter. And the orbiter, lunar orbiter, was fine, it's still orbiting returning data. The lander was supposed to have landed on the 7th of September, didn't unfortunately land successfully, and the um, ISRO didn't really handle that very well in my view. They could have kept uh, more of the people, uh, more of the, uh, not only India, uh, population of India uh, informed, but also the global community. It did crash. They had a problem with uh, one of the thrusters, uh, one or more of the thrusters, or perhaps the software that were controlling them, and it never did establish contact that they were hoping to. In the wake of that, um, late last year, a couple of months ago, they made an announcement that uh, they would repeat that experiment, and they would go by December this year back to the moon, but with only a lander and rover. Now, that data, as I indicated earlier, is likely to slip, but they are going to go back to the moon with Chandrayaan-3, lander and rover, probably by about this time next year. That's the most um, recent or the earliest of the missions coming going back to the moon in uh, scope for India. But also India is collaborating with um, Japan, and, and that mission... Uh, when uh, the date hasn't been fixed yet, but it will uh, be uh, landing on the south pole of the moon with the intention of uh, India providing the lander and Japan providing the rover and the lander. Uh, in addition to that, the Indians, uh, the Ind- Israel is also working on uh, a program with, um, with France and NASA for spacecraft, and there are various plans for the private sector in India, but nothing firm uh, on that going back to the moon just yet. I think, is there also a solar mission planned? Yes, there is. Um, It's called Aditya, and it's going to one of the Lagrangian points, uh, Aditya L1. It's uh, a solar telescope, solar observatory, and uh, it's been in the pipeline for quite a few years. Initially, it was going to be uh, just an Earth-orbiting satellite, but then given the uh, problems with observing the sun from Earth orbit, you half the orbit, you can't see the sun. A huge decision was made about four or five years ago to uh, put this into a Lagrangian 
uh, orbit from where it would be able to see the sun all the time. And that single shift in the mission profile meant that uh, there was a huge number of um, additional work which doesn't necessarily cause delays and it will need a bigger rocket which now India has also. Uh, India's one of the key developments uh, last year was the operationalization of its GSLV Mark III, which uh, is what India refers to as a heavy lift launch vehicle. Mm -hmm. And to get anything of a substantial mass to Mars or lunar orbit or one of the Lagrangian points, you do need a heavy lift vehicle, and that's what will be used for the solar mission Aditya L1. Now, you know, other nations have both a civilian and a military space program. Um, does, I, I would assume India has the same thing where their military is also pursuing space projects. Absolutely. <laughs> You're dead right. Um, most space programs usually come about because of the um, military imperative. Um, however, um, at the outset, India is unusual. It didn't start out that, start out that way. Uh, back in the 1960s, uh, India was still, uh, you know, a very recent um, independent nation. Uh, it became independent only in 1947. And the nature of uh, um, the problems that a new nation has to solve, uh, a lot of people said, oh, you don't want to go into space. That's just not appropriate for you just yet. Focus on the more basics of dealing with poverty and education and healthcare. But there was a visionary, as most of these things are driven by, a guy called Vikram Sarabhai, who's largely recognized as the father of the Indian space program, who said, no, no, this uh, is a way that uh, a nation that's just making its way in the world can get uh, to be industrialized and uh, she's should not necessarily go the way that uh, other nations have gone through the process of industrialization. Just leapfrog some of the technologies, get onto the um, modern technologies. And the prime minister of the time really was very keen on uh, that kind of approach. And uh, that's what India did. So it had a, a space program very early on with the design of, with the intention of getting a country um, industrialized in the shortest possible time and bring it up to speed with the uh, existing Western countries. The militarization aspect was not uh, considered at that time, but of course, um, as just as it happened with the atomic weapons throughout um, the post-Second World War era, since once one country got a an atomic weapon, then its neighbors automatically thought of doing likewise. Mm -hmm. And so it was with uh, with India, when China got uh, tested its atomic weapon in 1964, uh, India pursued that route too. And then when China launched its satellites in uh, 1970s, it also, India also wanted to make sure it kept up. And uh, although initially it was to uh, provide social and economic benefits to the country, the space program now does provide uh, communication satellites for the Indian Navy, Army and Air Force. And in one respect, if I just mention 
the one of the experiments that India conducted uh, it was in combination with the India, the Indian Space Research Organization, and the Department of Space, uh, the, the Department of Research and Defense, DRDO, Department of Research and Defense Organization. It's the Department of Defense equivalent in the U.S. And it was um, a, an anti-satellite test that India conducted in March last year. Israel placed a satellite in Earth orbit, in low Earth orbit, and then. Um, uh, about two months later, it uh, launched a missile from India and destroyed it in Earth orbit. And the whole message behind that was that was to really reply to a test that China had conducted. It's again, an ASAT anti-satellite test that uh, China conducted in 2007. So every country now um, is driven by the the requirements of its uh, military, and India is no different. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Gurbir Singh about the Space Agency of India, past, present, and future. You can find him and his podcast at astrotalkuk.org and on Twitter at Gurbir Singh. If you like this podcast, please follow, like, and comment at spacewalksmoneytalks.com on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Now back to the podcast. Is India worried about um, the space debris issue much, or is that more of a problem of, of other countries with more satellites? Well, uh, every space nation, uh, every nation that wants to uh, invest in space should be worried about that. It was worried about the space debris didn't it didn't do a bad job uh, it was didn't do a job as good as it said it was going to do um, the the space debris that resulted in um, last March test that India conducted was minimal but it was um, there were some fragments that ended up at very high altitudes and NASA uh, and many of the other international players were uh, not very happy with the, the results. It was just like any nuclear test, people around the uh, neighboring countries don't agree with that. But in the case of the debris from the test that India conducted in March, there were about a hundred uh, or so pieces that were left in Earth orbit, which India had anticipated from their simulations that wouldn't be there. They said that everything that, all the debris that came out of the test would be deorbited by itself um, within about 45 days. Mm. In effect, it took a lot longer and about uh, two dozen pieces are still in Earth, low Earth orbit right now. So not minimal, but it is still um, uh, an issue. And uh, India, just like all other countries, wanted to send a message, uh, which I think it was successful in doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think, so just thinking about what you've told me so far about ISRO and how it controls the Indian space industry, it seems like this will keep them from getting into uh, space tourism or space mining. It, you know, it seems that private companies are leading those efforts, and that's not happening in India. That's right. Uh, I think uh, so you have in the U.S. the space law. Um, a lot of the countries are now feeling it necessary to have some local national legislation 
which defines the framework under which um, local companies, space companies, can operate. And uh, until India does that, um, everything, uh, you know, I should say there are private companies operating in India already. Uh, there is a company that's uh, produced and launched satellites, one satellite, two satellites already. One of them was on board an Indian um, launcher, and the other one was through SpaceX. And it's an Indian private company that did it, Exceed Space. And although um, they've done this, uh, and I should also mention there's another private company that's been producing um, electric propulsion ion engines for spacecraft. Based in India, and Israel is its only uh, customer. So those private companies are operating on a, especially, uh, essentially what is a, a unique um, arrangement, a contract. In order for the private sector to flourish, they really do need to open up um, the legislation and define through legislation uh, that's passed through Parliament what country, what companies' um, obligations would be, what the national obligations would be, should a, an Indian private sector company cause grief to a, um, some assets either in space or on Earth or belonging to another country. This is the kind of discussion that's being had in countries around the world. And I think the US has already uh, got a space act in place. Um, the way that company uh, which might want to launch a spacecraft, needs to get authorization for launching, getting clearance for, for airspace, getting insurance cover, getting the spectral uh, bandwidth requirements through the legal process nationally as well as through the ITU. All of that has to have uh, some mechanism, some instrument within a country that can be, that it can achieve on a, um, on a more um, simplified uh, way rather than, for example, in the US you'd have to go through the State Department and the FCC and many other government officials. Bring, if once it's organized, it can be brought down to just one uh, point of contact to allow this. So in India, the space sector the commercial space sector is um, uh, space law has really held back uh, the development of the space sector, but it is something that's been debated very heavily and loudly, and maybe later this year there will be some progress. Hmm. What are and this is sort of a related question. Um, I'll maybe get back towards this issue. Um, what are the major uh, intellectual centers um, in India for space, either um, universities or um, think tanks or anything like that? Well, there are, it's, it's quite an interesting question. You know, in the U.S. you have uh, JPL, Ames, Goddard. India doesn't quite have something like that. It should have, it needs it, doesn't quite uh, have something like that. Just about everything that does exist um comes under the Israel control. Uh, Israel has the um, uh, space port in Sriharikota, which is on the east coast. On the west coast in Gujarat, there is the space application center, where most of the 
um, subsystems and applications are created which end up in payloads for space spacecraft. Way down south in, in India is the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center, where a lot of the development of uh, launch vehicles and um, rocket propellants are made. And indeed, um, there are liquid propulsion centers down in the south of India too. And one of the um, spacecraft I didn't mention is um, India has been developing for quite some time its own reusable spacecraft. Uh, or as it formally calls it, the Reusable Launch Vehicle Technology Demonstrator. Uh, about five years ago, it conducted its first flight. It's a very small, cut-down version in appearance to the space shuttle. It was, of course, unmanned, and it was launched from a, a solid booster up to um, a suborbital flight, and it made a, a simulated landing on the sea, it essentially crashed and was not recovered. But it did do, was, it did perform and then tested some of the key technologies required for a reusable space vehicle. That was built entirely at the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center. The second mission of that, in fact, was due to be, should have taken place from, um, um, from an airdrop and a, and a landing on a runway last December. That didn't happen but it's going to be uh, uh, hopefully happening in, uh, uh, in the next few months of uh, the first half of this year. One of the other, other centers I should mention is up in the north in the state of Punjab. There's this semiconductor fabrication facility where a lot of the semiconductor and integrated circuits used in space, spacecraft control are constructed. And um, I asked the question because, at least in the U.S., it seems that where you have the intellectual centers, you start to have small companies grow around them, either because the the people trained in these centers, you know, stay locally and, you know, they network and they have the access to um, skills there, or companies move close to these centers for the same reasons. And I was just wondering if India had anything close to that. Um that's quite interesting. Uh, is it um, Route 66 that you have uh, up near MIT? Um, this is the kind of, um, uh, or the Silicon Valley of today, is the sort of thing that uh, Vikram Sarabhai tried to set up in the 1960s when, uh, when the space program was first launched. So the answer, I suppose, the nearest equivalent would be Bangalore. And Bangalore um, has, as always, for many years, uh, has been the centre for one of the larger organisation uh, companies. There was called the Bangalore Electronics Limited, which is one of the reasons. It's a very large concern, a bit like General Electric's, I guess, of, uh, of the US. Um, and also in Bangalore is the Indian Institute for Science which is where a lot of the um, innovation and technical de development takes place. And some of the companies, one of the companies I mentioned in India, called Bellatrix, that develops the ion engines for spacecraft, uh, is founded in association with the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. Uh, 
also in Bangalore is the um, company that is mostly a, a defense organization. That, uh, it's called the Hindustan Air Limited, where aircraft are developed and um, Indians small fighter trainers are developed. So it's a lot of concentration of electronics, aviation, and technical innovation coming out of uh, academic institutions in Bangalore. Mm-hmm. Now, does um, previously I, I mentioned how many engineers India has, um, but but let me ask, is there does India feel as though maybe it needs more engineers? Is there a dearth? Is there a, more than, than maybe there they can um absorb are there any initiatives to increase space engin- aerospace engineering in india well i can only give you my personal view and, and speculation on this mm-hmm. um indian engineers and scientists are really good at what they do um a lot of them have been working outside india for many years and you know one of the things that you'll hear about the indian space program is this that India does everything uh, on on the cheap, and if you want, uh, and you know, fair enough, com- competition is bringing prices down right around the world anyway. But um, the Indian space program uh, has uh, been, uh, I, th- I think, emphasising its frugality too much. Um, sure, um, it should be. Prices should be low and it should be competitive. But India's quality of what they do is really high. For example, the spacecraft that uh, went to Mars in 2013 was India's very first attempt at something so far away. And now that we're about seven years on, it's still in Martian orbit and operating. Technologically, it's a spectacular success. So there is a huge deal of uh, uh, talent in India. Unfortunately, part of the problem I was referring to earlier, the frustration in working in a a very government, tight government uh, organizational environment, Indian engineers and scientists don't choose to stay there. And I suspect, and here's my speculation, on the one hand, India, uh, Israel wants to keep the prices low, so they want to have engineers and not pay them very much, which is uh, just what you need in order to get people, those engineers, to think about working elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, India has a very large population and a very large young population, so they will find engineers to work in Israel. But I suspect that after a while, the Israel will lose the most talented individuals because of the working environment in which Israel operates. So unless they um, change that and make it attractive and increase the salaries and increase the training for those individuals, those key, the talented individuals will leave India and there will be something in the way of a, a brain drain. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's something that um, every space agency has to look out for, but particularly India, because uh, I think the, uh, the talent uh, that India has in this respect is, is huge and it would be a pity to see um, India trying to keep prices low 
um, losing out on, on that talent if it chose to do that. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I don't know why, but just as you were talking, it popped in my head that India maybe has the, um, I don't want to say unique capability, but the uh, an opportunity to lead the way in space mining. If you think about it as um, if space mining were an automated um, endeavor where you could just, you didn't have to send manned craft out there. You, you create a technologically advanced um, spacecraft and, and mining device and, you know, send it out and, and that sort of thing. For some reason, India seems like it would be a good country to develop that that industry because of low costs, maybe. Yes, the engineers aren't getting paid as much, but if the costs are low, maybe they're, they could be ahead of the curve. And that's true, not just for space mining, but so many other areas. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think um, that's a very commercially driven goal. Mm-hmm. And currently, the commercially driven goals are not getting the government support, or they don't have the freedom the, the legislative freedom under which they can do this kind of thing. America is far better placed than that. And China has, since about three, four years, um, the government there has given Chinese private sector companies uh, much more freedom, and they are making some headway, unlike India. So although, in principle, you're right, I agree, India could do a lot, a lot more in that respect. Unfortunately, I don't think... The private sector in India, which is where the lead would come from, has got that capacity, certainly hasn't got it yet. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I feel like India has the the benefit of um, maybe lower costs than the U.S., um, greater freedom of expression and exchange of ideas than maybe China would have. Um, but then you have this government restriction. I think if India had loose, loosens things up commercially, I feel like it has a a nice confluence of capabilities, um, but as you say, um, that doesn't the environment doesn't exist right now. Yeah, and I think uh, it is um, quite an advanced technology. You know, asteroid mining is not something that anybody's really engaged in just yet in terms of uh, specific missions. Mm-hmm. But uh, given five years from now, what you're saying is exactly right, and and, and India could be at the lead if it was all set up to do so. Um, I should also mention that um, just like China, India has seen great economic development for the last decade or so. Uh, But right now, both India and China, uh, the economy is not growing as it used to. Um, You know, the trade problems that the U.S. has had with China has also held back the Chinese economy. Uh, There's various reasons why the Indian economy slowed down. And it's ironic because the space economy throughout all of this time is actually doing really well. And that's an area that uh, governments should focus because of that reason. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what what excites you about space, personally? Well, I'll, uh, I'll go out on a limb. Uh, I, I, I usually find, uh, apart from the technological achievements and the innovations that take place in space, um, quite riveting. What I find is, um, I think beyond um, nationalistic goals, uh, although ironically is the nationalistic and political goals that drive space, that we... Uh, humans on Earth 
um, have a future in space. And you know, if you like you, I'm also a fan of sci-fi, and I see our future, our collective human future in space and in other parts of the solar system and beyond. And it's through the close interaction of the collabor collaboration that takes place between multiple countries with the, uh, the International Space Station right now, for example, which has been a huge technological success, scientific success, and also, I think above all, it's been a success in politics, in bringing and keeping countries together. I remember uh, about three or four years ago when the relationships between U.S. and uh, US, uh, and Russia were not very uh, not going very well, and President Putin saying, "Oh yes, you know um, things may not be going very well down here, but up in space we're collaborating like brothers and sisters." And that bringing together of people uh, through the media of space, if you like, is thing that uh, not only excites me but gives me hope for our collective future mm -hmm. yeah i agree um so where can people find you on the web social media website your podcast okay so um if you just look for uh guru Bia singh um astronomy in google you'd find something but my podcast is called astro talk uk and the web address and just has one dot in it is astrotalkuk.org mm -hmm. and that have all the uh, information and uh, um, my I'm also on Twitter at Gurubir Singh. Okay, and just to I'll spell that for um listeners: uh, G U R B I R S I N G H. Gurubir Singh. And you say that so well, Chris. <laughs> all right, so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, yeah, just just to say that um, um, India's space program is very unusual compared to uh, the other countries, uh, particularly its um, uh, focus on social and economic development for its initial founding. And the initial founders would be quite impressed with uh, uh, the way that it has gone so far. One of the um, things that made India unique um, in its uh, in the evolution of its space program was the people who set up the conditions very early on. And one of the, um, in fact, the very first prime minister of India um, was um, Nehru, who, um, despite his religious beliefs um, and you know India has a very long history of uh, spiritual and uh, religion uh, going back centuries and thousands of years but when Nehru became the president the prime minister of the independent India in 1947 he captured something in the Indian constitution that he thought was so important and he captured what he called the uh, scientific temper and the uh, Article 51A of the Indian Constitution says that uh, it requires that every Indian citizen shall develop a scientific temper, humanism, and a spirit of inquiry and reform. And that shift from a spiritual India to a more scientific India, I think, is at the heart of its 
based program, but indeed many other scientific institutions too. And uh, through that combination, uh, I think India uh, has not only done well for itself, but has shown the rest of the world uh, the way that we can integrate both life here on Earth and in space. I agree. I think a lot of countries could um, could stand to um, to apply that sort of thinking. So, yeah, thank you very much for speaking with me. You're welcome. It's great fun. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Spacewalks Money Talks. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more fascinating information at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com, on YouTube under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Facebook under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Instagram under Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you for listening.